Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Let's do it. All right. What we're going to do this morning, we're going to start our new series and it's called Behind the Scenes. Everyone say Behind the Scenes. I'm going to whiz through this. I've got, I've got somebody knows. I'm just going to whiz through it, okay? Behind the scenes. You see, what you need to know about me is this, among other things, is other than I love Bruce Springsteen, I love going to the movies. Yeah. And to date, my favourite movie of all time is Top Gun. It always will be. I saw it again this week. It was, on, it was on television this week. I feel the need, the need for speed. I just felt like I had to watch it yet again. Anyway, I love the movies. And uh, I went to the movies just this week. And I took my lovely wife, we went on a bit of a date, which was fantastic, and we saw a film. I wouldn't normally mention the films I see because it always gets me into trouble, but this one's a pretty safe one. We saw Last Vegas. <laughs> Kath and I were the youngest people in the cinema. <laughs> and, and, and there were four main stars to this film. There was Michael Douglas, looking as plastic as ever. <laughs> there was Robert De Niro looking as miserable as ever. There was Kevin Klein, uh, looking different as ever. He just, I didn't even recognise him. And the fourth one was Morgan Freeman, of course. He's, 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 he's like Jesus. He's always the same. He just looks the same all the time. Have you ever thought that? Thing? Same, same. This is always the same. Anyway, so Morgan Freeman. And I watched the film. And honestly, it's a good, feel-good film. Oh, we enjoyed it anyway, and as did all the older people in the meeting, in the cinema. Anyway, at the end of the film, Morgan Freeman's name came up. Robert De Niro's name came up. Michael Douglas's name came up. Kevin Klein's name came up. And then to my surprise, all these other names came up. I thought, oh, okay, that must be her, that must be him, that must be that guy, that must be... Okay, yeah, there's a stuntman. And then these names get coming. How many of you know what I'm on about? They keep coming. And they keep coming. I'm like, oh, hang on, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't see him. I didn't see him. I didn't see her. I didn't see her. I didn't see him. I didn't even, I didn't even know that person was alive. I, I just, and they just come. And I, you know what I'm on about? They're called the credits. Yeah. And, and it's an amazing thought that, you know, there's these four main stars, but there's a myriad of other people and a myriad of other positions that are taking place behind the scenes in order to make that film happen. And so in other words, I, I got to thinking that most of what I'm seeing on screen, actually, I'm not really seeing at all when it comes to making that film. In other words, there's more happening behind the scenes than what we can actually see on the screen. And I felt like it was one of those moments where God spoke to me about what it is to be a Christian. See, I, I appreciate, and, I, and this is going to happen today, people are going to come up to me and say, that was a great service, and you would be right. <laughs> you would be right. You would be more accurate if you said it was awesome, but that's fine, whatever language you want to use. But I'm going to get some encouragement, I'll get some compliments, and I appreciate that, and I receive that. Uh, I don't live for it, but I, I thank God for it at times, and it's, it's helpful. But what you need to understand is what you see me do up here is the smallest part of my life. It's the smallest part of who I am. It's the smallest part of what I do. 
In actual fact, one of the things that grieves me, particularly with young Christians today, is they see what goes on up here and they aspire to be this and to do this, not knowing what it takes to do this and to be this, because this is not a doing, this is a being role. Amen? You can clap. And so this is just a, such a small part. It's a part I love. I really do. I love standing in front of people. I love telling stories. I love presenting the Word of God. I, I, I love being dramatic. I, I'm, a, I'm an actor at heart. I, I love that. I, I'm, I'm loud and proud. I'm colourful by name and nature. I don't apologise for that. But all this bravado, all this presentation, all this motivation that you see... What you need to know is coupled with a both-and theology, a both-and thinking. And if you were to ask me, what is it that you do every morning? I want you to know every morning it's not me getting up here, standing in front of the mirror saying, hey, I don't, that's not me. Every morning for me starts in silence, solitude and the Scriptures. My life looks totally different than what you see on a Sunday morning. Every day for me starts with those three S's. Write them down. Silence, solitude, and the Scriptures. And this is something that I, did, I adopted as a pastor, a pastor or a minister. It's not like I'm a pastor now. I better do that. From the age of 15, since I gave my life to the Lord, I realised, based upon an example set to me by my dad, that silence, solitude, and Scriptures are where it's really at. And so as a 15-year-old boy slash man, I developed a little bit later in life, and so I was probably still a boy at 15, whatever. But there I was, sitting silently, by myself, reading the Word of God. 15. When I was 16, I found myself waking up in the morning, sitting by myself, in silence, reading the Word of God. When I was 17, guess what I was doing? I woke up in the morning and I found myself by myself in silence reading the Word of God. Guess what happened when I was 18? When I turned 18, this is what I did. I found myself getting up in the morning and being by myself in silence. No praise and worship music. No television on. Silence. The sound of silence. And the scriptures. When I was 19, when I was 20, 21, 22, 23, I'm getting old, aren't I? 24, 25, 26. Because to me, that's where Christianity starts. Whatever you value most is what you do first. It's just a symbol. It's just simple. Whatever you value most, you do first. And since I've come into a relationship with Jesus, He is the love of my life. Cass up there, my family up there, my, even my dog's getting up there. But none of them saved me. Jesus is the love of my life. And I want that to be reflected in the way I live my life. 
Without that, this is just a show. You don't have to be a Christian to preach well. Ricky Gervais, who is an atheist by nature and, and blatant about it, he's an incredible preacher. He actually opens the Bible and, and, and does comedic shows from the Bible. Brilliant preacher, brilliant communicator. But he's not presenting the same message. And, and so for, for the parents in this place that are bringing their kids along to church on a Sunday, that's great, but that's not where it's at. That's part of the Christian life. It's not the Christian life. If your kids are not seeing you in silence, solitude, in the scriptures, I think you're going to make it very hard for our youth leaders to have any chance of them being in church when they're 18. And we can blame the youth program or the lack of, but maybe, maybe it just has more to do with what they see at home. Silence, solitude, and the scriptures. I, I had that model to be by my dad, but that's actually a biblical pattern. We, we read of the stories that Jesus did, the incredible testimonies, blind eyes being opened, deaf ears being unblocked, dead bodies being raised. I mean, Jesus just ruined the funerals he went to. You've got to understand, Jesus, you didn't want Jesus going to funeral. He would ruin it. You spend all that money, pick the right songs, get the power. You didn't want Jesus coming to funeral because he's only going to ruin it. By the time Jesus comes to the funeral, you're not going to get to your PowerPoint presentation because it's just going to raise the person to life. He ruined funerals. Miracles everywhere Jesus went. But that's not where Jesus started his day. In Mark chapter 1, verse 35, it says, While it was still dark, everyone say dark. That suggests it was early. Say early. There's our problem. We don't like getting up early. It says he got up. Everyone say got up. Here's the key to the life of Jesus. He got up when it was early. Wow. Turn to the person and say, wow, just because I like the sound of that. He got up while it was still dark. He left the house. Some of you are going to have to leave the house because there's too many distractions. You can't be in solitude and silence when you've got young kids. That cannot be your excuse. It can't be your excuse. You're going to have to get up. Some of you will have to leave the house. Leave it all behind. And go for a walk. Maybe just water the plants. Do something that gets you alone in silence from all the competing distractions in your life. He went to a solitary place. And that's where he prayed. Jesus' power and anointing flowed from this place of silence, solitude, and the scriptures. People often say, oh, I've tried Christianity. It doesn't work for me. Did it start in silence, solitude, and the scriptures? We've got to see the value of this. Otherwise, my fear is that we'll come to church, be entertained, but we won't grow as disciples. 
Jesus said, go and make disciples. And what you get on a Sunday at church is not, not going to be sufficient enough for us in the discipleship making process if that's all we've got. I believe coming together to church is a big part of it. It's an important part, but it's not the only part. It's a both and. So we need to be a people that understand there are things that need to happen behind the scenes if we are to truly grasp the life that Jesus is calling us to. And so my subtitle to behind the scenes as our title would be an out-of-sight out of disciplines for an out-of-this-world life. That's what this whole series is about. It's out of sight disciplines for an out of this world kind of life. Jesus lived out of this world. He lived beyond this world. He wasn't restricted to the limitations of this world because he had these disciplines in place. He was able to do what others couldn't do because he had these disciplines in place. And I believe when we have these disciplines in place, you'll be able to do things others can't do. You'll be able to have peace in the darkest times because you had the silence, the solitude and the scriptures in place and you were able to go to work, you were able to go to a tough place, you were able to go to a dark place, you were able to deal with tough times and you were able to do it with your head held high and you were able to model something that you couldn't do in your own strength because in the out-of-sight disciplines, you've been empowered to be able to do what you could not otherwise do. And to me, that is a description of the anointing. The anointing comes on us to live a life of peace, a life of wisdom, a life of direction, hope, joy, when the circumstances would say otherwise. Who wants that kind of life? Well, we can have it but we've got to get these disciplines in place. I'm almost out of time, but I'm going to quickly run through this. I wanted to read from the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is an incredible book. I'm not going to have time to read through. I had a big slab of scripture. I wanted to read all of chapter one and the first eight verses of chapter two. I don't have time for that. But I want you to go home and read it for yourself. So that's Nehemiah chapter one and Nehemiah chapter two, verses one to eight. Okay, I think there's 11 verses in chapter 1. There's 8 ch chapters in ch uh, verse chapter 2. It's not a lot of reading, but it's going to help you understand where I'm coming from. And so what you need to understand is a bit of background to Nehemiah's life is this, that Israel was struggling, and they'd been struggling for about 144 years. People previous to Nehemiah had tried to bring restoration. It just failed. This once great glorious nation, this trophy of God's grace lay in ruins. Enter the call of God upon Nehemiah's life. And that's what the book of Nehemiah is, is all about. It's about a man embracing the call of God. But this is where it starts. It starts in the place of prayer. And so as what thou, our first theme to this series, we're just going to quickly look at prayer. I think you knew I was going there. I think we got that. Prayer. And so here's Nehemiah. He's been called by God to a dubious task of restoring this nation that lay in ruins for 144 years. Turn to the person next to you and say, 144 years. 144 years. And God says, Nehemiah, I want you 
to restore this great nation. That sounds awesome. Wow, God's going to use me. But it's daunting nonetheless. And this is what we learn from Nehemiah's life about prayer. There's many things we learn about Nehemiah's life. Here's some things I want to draw from, from his prayer life. The first thing is this, that prayer must come from the heart. When Nehemiah got wind of how bad the situation was in Jerusalem, he wept. He wept. He didn't blame. He didn't point an accusing finger. It just struck a chord in his heart. I wonder, as we were praying for people this morning, I wonder how many were struck in a chord in their hearts. Oh, God, please move. Imagine if it was you suffering. I know many of these people down the front, and I know what they're going through. I know some of the pain that they are personally experiencing. It's got to touch our heart. If we're going to be a praying church, it's got to touch our heart. Prayer starts in the heart. It's not just a matter of extending your hand. I said, please extend your hand. It's not, whatever. Seriously, imagine if you were dying and people were praying for you like that. How would you feel? Yeah, gee, it's gone a bit long this morning. Come on, it's got to come from our heart. Nehemiah, who'd been serving um, uh, the king, he he makes this journey to see the city of of Jerusalem and he he weeps. He doesn't blame. He takes ownership. He says, oh my God, this has got to change. It's not good. It's an indictment on your name. It's an indictment on this city. It's an indictment on the great nation of Israel. And he weeps and he weeps and he weeps. Prayer starts in the heart. You're not going to get up early and pray if you're not moved in your heart. I can motivate you. I can probably motivate most people to pray tomorrow morning. But it's not going to last. My motivational gift is not going to make it last for you. It's got to go deeper. And my prayer is, God, break our hearts for the things that break yours. Prayer starts in the heart. Secondly, prayer is the preparation ground. Nehemiah was facing an impossible task. When God calls you, he calls you to do what you can't do. You've got to know that. God does not call you because you are smart enough, big enough, wise enough, skilled enough, talented enough. He calls you because he expects him to be involved in the process. He wants someone who is willing more than able. God can add the ability. What he can't do is add the willingness. And so Nehemiah was asked to do something that was beyond him. He was asked to do something that he couldn't do. And this is what he said, yes. But he knew enough to know that if I'm going to do this, I've got to pray first. And so before he went back to the king with his plan, he prayed. He wasn't just hasty. He wasn't overcome by his broken heart for the situation and operating in fear. He wasn't just operating in hyper faith and said, I'm going to sort this out. He was moved deeply in his heart and he prayed intensely before addressing the king. If you're going to do anything great for God, it's got to be spent first in prayer. Before we ever planted this church, we were praying. This church was birthed out of a prayer meeting. When our pastor said, do you want to plant a church? Basically, those that came with us were those that were attending the prayer meeting. This church started as a prayer meeting. Prayer is the preparation ground for all the great things God wants us to do. Why why are there so many prophecies unfulfilled? Because we don't prepare ourselves 
in prayer for that prophecy to come to pass. And so the prophecy gets moved from person to person to person until somebody like Nehemiah stands up. This moment could have happened before the 144 years had passed. I believe there would have been men and there would have been women at 100 years, 50 years prior. But no, no, no. Now there's this man who prepares his heart in prayer. Number three, prayer needs to be consistent and constant. Nine times in the book of Nehemiah, prayer is mentioned. Prayer is mentioned over and over and over again. Prayer should not be something you did once upon a time. If if we're still talking about that incredible moment back in Hillsong Conference 2004, there's something wrong. If we talked about that glorious day when I got saved and nothing greater has happened since, there's something wrong. If we're still talking about that revival meeting that we went to when God was all over me and my body shook and nothing greater has happened since, something's wrong. Prayer should be constant and consistent. Did I mention when I was 19, I got up and it was silent, solitude and the Scriptures. When I was 20, did I mention that? It was silent, solitude and the Scriptures. This is a pattern it never ceases to amaze me when people are disgruntled with God or, or wanting, you know, disgruntled within a local church and, and they're feeling God saying this and feeling God saying that. I said, are you really praying? Are these disciplines in place? And invariably, no, they're not. It's amazing how people stop reading the Bible and they tell me what God has said. It's an amazing thing to me. Prayer should be consistent and constant. Number four, prayer has many faces. It has, takes on many forms. Nehemiah's prayer, as you read through the book of Nehemiah, you'll see he had long prayers and he had short prayers. There was one time when the king addressed him and he said, I prayed to God. So in the king's presence, he prayed. Now, you don't waste the king's time. I imagine that prayer that he's talking about that's recorded in the scripture was under his breath and very quick. I imagine the prayer at the beginning of Nehemiah when he was assessing Israel was loud, was full of tears, Prayer takes on many forms. If prayer for you is just quiet, or it's just shouting at the top of your voice, I think we're going to miss hearing something of God, what God wants to do. Yeah. If you're only ever shouting at your wife, that may be needed on occasion. And all the men said, Amen. <laughs> but if you're only ever shouting, there's something wrong, yeah? yeah. Wouldn't, you, wouldn't you say, just stop shouting? But you know what, if you're just only ever whispering and only ever nice, no wife is that good. (laughs) Certainly no child is. You know you can't do life with one approach. That's my point. Because it's a relationship. And so it is with our prayers with God. And, And our prayers to God can take on many forms. There's petitions and there's thanksgiving, and sometimes there's just whispering sweet nothings. The conversations I have with my wife vary. Sometimes it's strategy, sometimes it's planning, sometimes it's vision, sometimes it's working out how we're going to discipline the kids. Other times it's sweet nothings. Sometimes I communicate with my wife just how much I love her with my arm around her saying nothing, just watching a movie. I'm communicating something. So just as our communication one to another takes on different forms, so too our prayer with God. It shouldn't always be I mean, I'm convinced God's like, what are you doing? 
Well, I, I'm serious. I, I, I think God looks down at us on the prayer meeting. What are they doing? I'm all knowing, but I don't even get that. <laughs> you imagine I go to my wife, I love you, Kathy, you are awesome, you're amazing, I love you, I love you, I love you. <laughs> and we do that, we go, what, really? Wow. There's a time we've got to get arc up. And there's times we get indignant, like we have about certain things that have happened to this church. E.g. the boundary wall. You better bet we believe when we prayed for the boundary wall, we went like, Jesus, we love you. And we just bring this situation before you. Because we know that you are all-knowing, sovereign and in control. And if you could possibly move, possibly, Lord. Just, that'd be really great. I didn't pray like that. I got mad. We got indignant. We started lifting our voice. Started stomping around. There's other times in the presence of God, like we were this morning, it's like, God, you're amazing. You're awesome. Both prayer. This and this, both prayer. How, how, how deep, how wide is your prayer life? Nehemiah's prayers took on many forms, and so should ours. Prayer gives us strength. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 2, Nehemiah said this of himself, I was very much afraid. Who's ever felt afraid? Some of you are so afraid you can't even put your hand up. You're that afraid. It's like, I want to tell you, I've been afraid many times. I've wanted to give up many times. And I've gone to God very much afraid. And through praying, God has given me strength to do what I didn't want to do what I was scared to do, but I did it nonetheless, and God came through, and it came across with a confidence, and an authority, and a boldness. If I can say anything to you, it'd be this, be humble before God, and be confident before men. We often do the opposite. We're confident before God, God, why don't you do this, why don't you do that, and we're humble before men. And it's, we've got to reverse that. We've got to be humble before God and confident before man. Prayer gives us strength. And my last point this morning, which you never thought I'd get to, seeing miracles all over this place this morning. Can the band come and join me? Can those who are going to give us the elements this morning, prepare yourselves, don't start giving it out, just get ready, that'd be great. This point is too important to miss. Let's just move quickly and quietly. The sixth thing we see in Nehemiah's example in life is that God, get this, answers prayer. God actually answers prayer. In Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 8, Nehemiah says, and because the glorious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my request. Now, what you've got to understand about this request, it was an audacious request. This is, what, this is what Nehemiah was effectively asking for. God had spoke to him. Now he had to be released from his job 
to be able to do what God had said. This is, this is what he's up against. This was his audacious request. You've got to get yourself in the story. He went to the king of whom he was employed by and effectively he said, can I be released from my job? He was cupbearer to the king. What did a cupbearer do? He drank all the wine prior to the king drinking it in case it was poisonous. So in the king releasing him, he was effectively putting his own life in danger. Why would he do that? There's hurdle number one. Why would this man, the king of the land, release the cupbearer and put his own life in danger? Why? But that was his ask. Can I, can I leave my job, put you in danger? Effectively, he was asking for a promotion as a city builder in another part of the kingdom. So saying, I don't want to do this job anymore. I want a promotion. P.S. I'm putting your life at risk. This is crazy stuff. He was then asking the king to change his own policies that he'd rejected 13 years earlier. This is a crazy ask. He was asking to be released to go and build a city that would be dedicated to a God the king didn't even worship. And then he said, I want you, king, to pay for the renovations and provide the material. Steve, get, get, get fired up, my friend. Come on. And then he says a little PS, like the fine print. I'll need to live in a house while I'm over there to do all this work, which I want you to provide. This is a crazy, big, fat, hairy, audacious ask. And Nehemiah says, because of the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my request. I don't want to look like as his penny. The king granted my request. I imagine his prayers that day were like this. Have you ever been so thankful you've got no words? He's just like, I imagine he's like this. Watering the lawn. Uh, Nehemiah, what are you doing? Uh, I don't know. Um, watering the lawn. No, no, you're, that's the concrete. The lawn's over there. Oh, okay. You've been right, yeah. I've had those days. Like God is just beyond. Our first day of planning this church. I think we did a service, did we, Fee? I, I, I might have preached, but I just remember walking around like... See, what you've got to understand is I think our prayers that we pray are far too small. See, what you've got to understand is the magnitude of our prayers magnify the magnitude of our God. I imagine Nehemiah was on a roll. I imagine he goes before the king. He gets, he gets confident now. I imagine God's looking down at, what are you asking for, Nehemiah? I didn't know. That wasn't in the contract. <laughs> he's on a roll now. Oh, P.S., I want this, and P.S., I want that, and P.S., I want another thing, and another thing. And the king's just like bam- bamboozled by all this, uh, okay. 
okay? I know we live in a real world with real problems, real situations, real issues. I know that. I know that. But there is a greater truth than that. Whatever truth you are facing, there is a greater truth. Whatever reality you're facing, there's a greater reality. And that is there is a God in heaven who is above all, over all, and working all things together for the good. And he's able to heal. So those we prayed for, believe God in spite of bad reports, in spite of very real, documented, x-ray proven reports. Just dare to believe God. Some of you are facing situations within families and messy marriages and breakups and separations and there's kids and it's just overwhelming. And that's your reality. I'm here to say there's a greater reality than that. But Tony, you don't know what I'm going through. And you'd be right. But God does. And that's what makes him God. I don't know everything. One of the hardest parts of my job is people try to treat me like God, like I should know all things, I should be everywhere, and when I let you down, I get disappointed. Because you place too much emphasis on me and not enough on God. I'm just a guy up here trying to do my best in presenting what I understand of this incredible God. I'm trying to point you to Him. I'll let you down. But I'm not here saying how good I am. I'm here telling you there's a God who knows you and loves you and will give you everything you need for whatever you're facing. That I believe to be true. God will give you everything you need for everything you're facing. Just be open to how he does that. If we assume God's going to move a certain way and he doesn't move a certain way, we say God didn't move. You've got to understand, the Jews were believing for a Messiah. But they weren't expecting a babe in the manger, not from Bethlehem. Not someone so normal and so natural like this Jesus character. No way. There's no way that's the Messiah. No way. No way. There's no way I've been praying all my life for that. So they rejected him. No, they didn't. They killed him. Don't kill what God is trying to tell you and get your attention on right now. Let's stand. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au.